0: Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. We are invited to gather, go, give, and grow together by the power of His Spirit. This week's teaching from Pastor Nate Bowers is titled, The Victorious Servant
1: continuing our sermon series on the servant songs and if you haven't been with us in the last couple weeks or if you're new or just visiting with us haven't been here in a while we're walking through some of the prophecies in the book of Isaiah as Isaiah was prophesying to the nation of Israel about this servant who would come and would do for Israel what they were not able to do for themselves and so we're going back and we want to explore the wonder of The arrival of Jesus, based on the promises that were laid in the Old Testament about this servant who would come for Israel. And often, if we are honest, and maybe you're even feeling this right now, Christmas sneaks up on you. It's sneaky like that. We often become so preoccupied with finishing everything by the end of the year, with all of the hubbub and the chaos and even madness of the holidays, that we actually get to Christmas and realize we never paused. We never reflected. We were never surprised at the wonder and power of Advent and what that means. And often that happens because of our own presumptions that we already know about Christmas. We already know about the serpent. We already know what Isaiah 53 tells us. We already know what the baby in the manger is about. And because we often just assume we know we fail to be surprised again at the wonder of Advent. So today, I want us all to be captured for the first time or for the millionth time by the words of Isaiah in chapter 53. As you may recall from previous sermons, as Scott has been preaching from the book of Isaiah for the last couple of weeks, for the life of the nation of Israel in this point in their history, this was a period of judgment. This was a period of longing for the people of God, looking forward to this future ruler who would come. This was a period when they were perplexed, when they were questioning, when they were confused about when God would show up. And what's crazy is that much of Isaiah's writing, he's actually just talking about time and space history, actual events that were happening in the world at the time with different kings and rulers and exiles taking place. And all of this is confirmed outside of the Bible. So he's actually speaking in time and space history about what was happening and about Israel's longing for the servant to come who would bring real justice, who would truly come for the poor, for the widow, for the oppressed, for the orphan, for the immigrant. And so today, in 53, Isaiah 53, we read about how this servant would achieve his victory. How would the servant come and win the victory of God over the world? So I want you to think about that. How would the servant win the victory of God over the world? There were kings, there were invaders, and Israel was a small uh, oppressed nation saying, we need our servant to come and do victory for us. How would that victory happen? So let's start, let's get our brains going on victory. When you think about a victory in warfare or in sports, what do you normally think about? We think about these different ways victory can be achieved through strength, or through strategy, thinking about sports, thinking about warfare, how victory can be won by overpowering the enemy. This week, again, I didn't plan this, um, I was led down a fresh and exciting YouTube rabbit trail, which I'm sure you were as well, and I was freshly captured by a very specific victory, and that would be the victory of the Italian stallion Rocky Balboa. If you are unfamiliar with the story of Rocky Balboa, he, uh, the story is set in Philly in the 70s, and Rocky is a bum. That's what he calls himself. I'm just a bum who's trying to get a shot at life. He's trying to get a shot at victory as a boxer. But for him, winning as a boxer is much less about the fame and the money, but actually about finding self-respect actually about proving to himself that he can go the distance. Proving to himself that he's not just a loser, no-name guy in Philly, but that he actually can hang with the best of the best. And so for Rocky, he gains his victory, not through being the fastest, not through being the strongest, not through being the guy with the best boxing technique, but he wins through enduring. He wins through outlasting his opponents. And I won't spoil any of the movies, but you now know what you're watching on a rainy Sunday afternoon. I highly recommend these movies. So victory can come through a variety of means. It's not just always through being stronger and physically dominating your opponent. And what we're going to see for Isaiah is the victory of God would come through the servant who would make all things right. But how would the servant do that? We're going to now go to Isaiah 53, and I'm going to ask Louis and Desiree uh, to come up, and they have very kindly agreed to read this passage for us, and we're actually going to start uh, in the end of chapter 52 in verse 13, and would you guys actually mind standing? We don't often do this, but would love for you guys to stand as Louis and Desiree uh, read this passage for us, starting in chapter 52, verse 13.
0: shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall, shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?
2: and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb not is led that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth his mouth
0: by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgressions of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand.
2: Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the inequities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to, to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession with the transgressors. Thank you, guys. You
1: all can be seated. What we're going to see today is that Isaiah 53 is all about how God has won the decisive victory over the world through the servant. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in this Advent season, this season of celebrating your arrival, that even now through uh, the structures and the setting of a church gathering, that we can stop, that we can pause That maybe we can even put our phones on do not disturb for a little bit and consider what the advent, the arrival of King Jesus means. So Jesus, we ask for your help. I ask for your help, Lord, as I try to communicate clearly and as effectively as possible what this servant has done and what he still is doing in us today. So Jesus, thank you that you, because of your spirit, are with us And that you are committed to helping us see you and love you and treasure you even more. So we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we want to consider how this servant would win the victory of God. But perhaps just as important for us to ask today is what does that mean for the church? How does the church now live out the realities of that victory? So how would the servant win the victory? I don't know if you were thinking about this when you heard that passage being read. It didn't really sound like a whole lot of victory happening there. And then, what does that mean? If that really was where the victory was, how does the church live out of it? These are the two twin realities that we need to answer today, both to be faithful to what Isaiah was saying, but also so that we can figure out what in the world we're supposed to be doing today as Jesus' people here in Hampton Roads. So let's first begin to explore how the victory was won. And one of the first things that I want us to see is that the servant won the victory of God by acting on behalf of Israel. The servant won the victory of God by acting on behalf of Israel. One of the most striking things that we've been seeing over these last two, three weeks that we've been in this series is realizing that the servant didn't just come in general to win a random victory for the world, he didn't just come to ransom people in general. He came on behalf of the nation of Israel. And if you are unfamiliar with the story of God, if you are unfamiliar with what the mission of God in the world is as seen in the Old Testament, then it would be very easy for you to say, why is that such a big deal? Who cares? The mission of Israel, Jesus came on behalf of Israel. Why does that matter? Well, friend, I want to say something that might be unsettling. If you don't know the role and mission of Israel then I would say you don't really know the role and mission of Jesus. If you don't understand the role and mission of Israel, then maybe you don't really understand the role and mission of Jesus. Because often what sadly happens is people come and think, oh, well, look at Jesus. He was really kind. He was loving. He died for my sins. Oh, see, he was so kind. He did miracles and stuff like that. But wait a minute, if we're not able to connect to how he was actually fulfilling and completing the mission of Israel in those things, then we can still know some true things about Jesus. But we don't actually fully understand why and what he was doing, especially if you're trying to read the Gospels and just seeing Jesus doing all these random things. Well, it might seem random because you don't know and understand the mission and role of Israel. Because in the story of Israel... We see, as Mike was even just sharing about our identities, we see that God has always had a family who would be those who would serve as priests and kings, who would give witness to what God was doing in the world. And what do we know about Israel? We know that they had failed, that they had given up their rule in the world to Satan and to other kings and to other rulers, that they had given up their rightful place as God's family in the world. And so that is why Isaiah is saying a servant Someone will come and do for the nation what they could not do for themselves. To quote an amazing Old Testament theologian, John Oswald, he writes this. What was Israel's task? As indicated throughout the book of Isaiah from chapter 2 onward, it was to be the means whereby the nations could come to God. Think about that. Pause. Don't look at the screen anymore. God put Israel in place not to be this people that would show off to the world. See." We're better than you guys. See, we have a covenant-keeping God. See, we have the Ten Commandments. No, he put them in place as a vehicle for his mission to happen. The Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, their story of Exodus being brought out of rescue, all of that was to be a witness to the world of what the one true God was like. So John... Oswald continues, but how could a nation that could not find its own way to God, a blind, deaf, rebellious nation, show anyone else the way? Great question. This is the dilemma that the servant of Isaiah has come to solve. He will be for Israel and the world what Israel could not be. Faced with Israel's failure, God does not wipe out the nation. He simply devises another way in which Israel's servanthood could be worked out through Israel. The ideal Israel. The ideal Israel came in the form of this servant, who we know is Jesus. He came and acted on their behalf. He came to be the light of the world, the true witness to God. We know that Jesus, this servant, would come and he would open the ears of the deaf. He would open the eyes of the blind which is what Israel was supposed to be doing in its witness to the nations. Jesus would come as the one who would bring healing to the nations, who would bring true justice to the world. So this is the victory of God in the world that the servant was going to come and do. But how would that victory come about? The servant would win the victory by rightly identifying and defeating The true enemy. So second thing we see in Isaiah 53 is that the servant won the victory by defeating the true enemy through taking on the punishment of sin. The servant doesn't just do what Israel was supposed to do. He actually takes onto himself the failings of the nation of Israel. He owns their sin. He owns their rebellion. He puts it onto himself. And what's so interesting, if you read about Israel, if you read about the prophets, if you read about what the people thought at the time, if you think about Israel at the time of the Roman exile, where was the problem? It was out there, right? The real problem was the nations. The real problem was the people with sexual perversions. The real problem was the people who bowed down to idols, right? That's the real problem right out there. And don't we say the same thing? The real problem is those republicans, The real problem is the progressives or the Democrats. The real problem is the people who live in such godless ways. They're the problem, right? The people who view politics or who view racism differently. Friends, none of those is the real battleground. None of those is where the servant comes to win his victory because none of those is the true battleground. The servant engages in the real battle which is the battle against Satan and against sin. I don't know what you think about the word sin or about being called a sinner. But according to Isaiah 53, that's the description of all of us. Human sin is rebellion against God's ways, his laws, his patterns. And if you look at Isaiah's description of the servant, that is the battle that the servant came to do. Look with me at verse 4. Isaiah writes, surely this servant has bore our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet what did we, when we looked at him, what did we say? We were disgusted at the servant. He was being beaten. He was carrying weakness. He was carrying human sin and shame. And so people at the time would have thought, he must have done something really wrong. Look at that guy. He's getting wasted. He's getting crucified. He must have done something really wrong. Friends, we're looking at a picture of our lot. We're looking at a picture of what should have been ours. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the servant, was the beating, the chastisement that brought us peace. And how are we healed? How are the nations healed? How are the people of God restored? Through his wounds. Pause. If you think that you found God, if you think that you had enough morals or about enough intelligence to come to God, look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has chosen our own way. Apart from the servant, we would not have come to him. And the Lord has laid on this servant our iniquity. Friends, the real problem isn't the people you disagree with. The real problem isn't the people in the world who think differently. Even think about COVID stuff, vaccine stuff. The real problem is not those people. The real problem for Israel wasn't Rome. It wasn't the Babylonians. It wasn't culture. It wasn't the fact that they were in exile. The real problem was human rebellion against God. And they needed a servant to come and do battle with that sin, to pay for that sin and to crush the one who was the leader and ruler in sin, Satan. And just, I was telling Scott this, I was just reflecting on this this week. If you just pause right there, if you begin to realize that the real problem is not out there, the real problem is actually your own sin, your own hatred, your own disgust of people who are different than you. If you realize that they're not the problem, but your sin is actually the problem, how does that change the way you view people? You realize you don't have to hate people. Especially in our culture and time where we are told these are the people after you have to hate. These are the people who view things differently. You need to shame them. You need to cut them off. Wait a minute. They're not the real problem. My sin is the real problem. Their sin is the real problem. So I don't have to hate people. I don't have to demonize people who I disagree with on. The real problem has actually been taken care of by someone. The real problem is something much deeper than things we would disagree with people on. And so we see this servant coming And how does he engage in victory? Not by physical combat, but he actually allows the power of Satan and sin to do their worst. Think about that. This language of iniquity being laid on him, being crushed under the weight and burden of human sin and human rebellion. Which again, remember, it's not out there. It's here. It's your sin. It's my sin. The servant absorbs all of that. Remember how I talked about Rocky in the beginning? How did Rocky win a lot of his victories? Not by going out there and crushing people in round one. Rocky endured everything they would throw at him until his opponent's power was exhausted. And then he got back up. That'll change the way you watch the Rocky movies. He allowed his opponent to exhaust everything on him. And in a similar way, that's what we see happening with this servant. He has allowed Satan and sin and death to literally crush him and exhaust everything. And then we know, what does the servant do? He rises. Because the power of Satan, sin, and death has been broken. So this is the reality of how the servant will win this victory through undergoing suffering Look at verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of who? Us. Verse 10 He was crushed because he was absorbing into himself all of the worst of Satan, sin, and death. And if you if you haven't caught this yet, I want you to see this right now. It doesn't take long to read this passage and think wait a minute, he's describing Jesus on the cross. Just in case you didn't know, a little biblical timeline, Isaiah wrote at least 600 years before Jesus came. 600 years before Jesus came. This isn't like just some spiritual, this is actually a real physical historical reality that the prophet Isaiah and the scrolls that we have of his writing are dated to at least 600 years before Jesus. But reading this passage, one commentator said, it sounds like it was written at the foot of the cross on Golgotha. It literally sounds like Isaiah is there looking up at this crushed, crucified lamb who is taking the sin of the world. So the servant achieves this victory by coming as the sacrifice, by coming as one who would fully cover the debt of the people. That's why, again, like we just don't have enough time in today's passage, in, this, in our sermon today, but go through and look at the language of sacrifice, atonement, Restitution. Think about all of the law of Leviticus. All of the laws in the Torah. And while you're thinking about that, let's ask a question, though. This, this blew my mind when I read a theologian talking about this this week. The servant was coming to do business with Israel's sin. But didn't Israel already have a system for sin? Didn't they already have a whole law code Of for this sin offer this sacrifice if you've done this type of thing then you need to offer this type of sacrifice if you are impure or unclean you need to do this to be made clean to come to the temple of God you have to wash in this certain way and then present yourself to the priest didn't Israel already have a system for sacrifice and wasn't it probably the best system for sacrifice in the world since God had given it to them so why is Isaiah saying this servant had to come and do sacrifice for sin? Wasn't there already a system in place? Have you ever thought about that? Wait a minute. The servant was coming, but Israel already had a system for that. No Israelite at the time was thinking, ah, this is a pretty crappy system we got. We need a Messiah to come. They were thinking a Messiah was going to come who was going to kick butt. They weren't thinking a Messiah was going to come who's going to replace the sacrificial system. So what we realize is Isaiah is picking up on something that few other people in the Old Testament would have picked up on. And that's that the Old Testament sacrifices weren't enough. They weren't enough to actually remove human guilt and human shame. No one in the Old Testament was thinking about this. They thought the Messiah would come and would kick butt and bring victory. But Isaiah is exposing here that the sacrificial system wasn't good enough. And just so you know, your own sacrificial systems that you still enact today, because you do and I do, they're not good enough either. In a sense, we can pause and realize that our voices join Isaiah's lament that the sacrifices we do to pay for our own sins are not enough. Their sacrifices were not enough. Our sacrifices, our promises to God that God will never do that again. God, I'm going to start doing this to pay for my sin. It's not enough, friends. Your efforts to clean yourself up will not be enough. Your promises to God, to others, to your spouse, that you'll clean up your act, you'll quit drinking as much, you'll quit your porn addiction, saying, I'll never do this again. It's not enough. It's not enough. I will do this to make up for that what I did. It's not enough. The way you hate yourself because of what you've done, it's not enough. Doing things like inflicting self-harm, it's not enough. This is because we all know that we're found wanting our sin and our weakness and our insecurities and our rebellion against god does deserve punishment and that's why we create sacrificial systems all the time ways that we can do penance ways that we can make ourselves feel less guilty for the hurt that we know we've done to god and to others israel had the best designed sacrifice system in the world and it wasn't enough This is why Isaiah tells us somebody else had to do it. Somebody had to come and take on sin in your place. A substitute had to come and do for you what you would literally, physically, spiritually, emotionally are unable to do for yourself. Do you see that? Do you see the sheer desperation of what Isaiah is showing Israel and showing us? So let's ask, where are we still trying to pay for our sins? What are you putting your hope in as it relates to your past? Of, oh, well, I've done this and this and this to make up for that. How are you currently trying to find ways to deal with your own guilt and your own shame? Friends, I hate to break it to you, it's not going to work, it's not going to be enough. Are you here today trying to deal with ongoing weakness and sin and guilt through self-help, through finding, I just got to find more motivation to quit this bad habit? It won't be enough. Until we see our absolute helplessness and need for this servant to step in on our behalf, we won't ever truly, fully change. Until you put your actual confidence in the work of that servant, you won't be able to move forward. And you see now in that place of desperation, the power of Isaiah's message that a substitute came for you. He actually stepped and said, I will willingly take on what you cannot do. This is the power and the wonder and the surprise of Advent. That this servant has arrived in the form of a little baby. To grow into a man. To perfectly obey God. To walk perfectly with God for 33 years. And then to actually own my guilt and your guilt. Friend, in all of your weakness, in all of your shame, in all of your own self-sacrifice, hear the beauty of the gospel. That he's enough. His sacrifice is enough. He no longer needs your blood, sweat, and tears because the servant has offered up his own blood, sweat, and tears on your behalf. This is the very core, the essential element of the Christian faith. Realizing that the goal is not to clean ourselves up so that God will come to us, but it is enough to say he's enough and I'm in him. That's the essence of the good news of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to have faith in Jesus. That I am freed from self-hatred and self-loathing because of my weakness. Because someone purchased that satisfaction on my behalf. The servant actually dealt with sin. Do you believe that today? Or do you at least want to believe that today? Do you see that it's not even your faith that saves you? It's your faith that puts you into allegiance with the servant. Who has saved you? This is why we don't bank on the quality of how strong our faith feels. We bank on the quality of the servant's sacrifice for us. So we see, I'm going to keep going here, we see the servant taking on the punishment of sin. But don't we still sin? Last I checked... I don't just have sins in my past, sins from this morning, sins from yesterday, sins from the day before, this last week, this last month, this last year, this last decade. I've got sins that I'm going to probably do this afternoon. I've got sins I'm going to do tomorrow. This is where we realize that the servant doesn't just die for sin, but the third thing we see is that he actually gives us righteousness. Point number three, the servant won the victory by not only taking sin, but in giving righteousness. Look at your Bibles, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is saying that the servant will bear human sin. He will put it, he will impute it to himself. And he will give you his righteousness. I'm not much of a Bible scholar, but the actual verbal tense used here in the Old Testament Hebrew means he will cause you to be righteous. Friends, this has explosive implications for your life. If you begin to not just apply it in your head, but actually put it into pockets of your life. For me, the reality of this came home in one of the darkest seasons of my life. I can tell you the story later if you'd like, but back in my mid-20s, I hit a complete wall in all of life. I was burned out on life, burned out on Jesus, burned out on church. I was in the middle of seminary, and I began to be stuck in a cyclical season of depression and anxiety. I had never been depressed or anxious a day in my life. And here I was stuck, knowing that, okay, well, Jesus has taken my sin, but how does that help me right now? I was stuck in a cycle of doubt about God, about the Bible. If I could really know if God was real, if I could really know that God was who he said he was. So imagine being on staff at a church and being in seminary with that. Definitely kind of a hot mess. But in that season, that was back around 2013, the Spirit began to lead me into streams of living water where I began to see and read about men and women who wrote about this reality called double imputation. That he doesn't just take our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. This is exactly what Isaiah is describing. Friends, that means that if Jesus had given Nate... His righteousness, that on my worst days of doubt and sin and shame, what changes? Nothing. My status is locked in place no matter how far I feel I am from God. My union with Jesus, I realized, wasn't tied to the quality of my faith, whether it was strong and glorious or weeping and hiding in the corner. And that's what it mostly was for about a year. The Father doesn't judge Nate on the merits of his righteousness which was definitely not too hot at that time, and often still is not too hot, the Father now views Nate through the lens of the servant's righteousness, which means on my worst days, I could look, often even with eyes full of tears, and see someone did it for me. So that means even as low as I feel, I'm still actually being held secure. Because the righteousness isn't on Nate. The righteousness is given to Nate. In that season, I realized that the worst days of sin and doubt did nothing to my status except me to make me, all they did was make me see even more clearly that it really is God who's holding Nate. It's not about how strong Nate's holding on to God. It's about how strong Jesus has already held on to Nate. Nate. And then I began to actually do the personal homework of realizing that so much of my depression and doubt and anxiety was because I had grown up believing that God loved me because of my track record, because I had been a good Christian, because I was on staff at a church. But here I was, a weak, bumbling, failing, weeping Christian who barely even knew if he believed in God, who then discovered the righteousness of another given to me. Realizing that righteousness comes from outside to Nate. As I began to chew on the implications of that, I realized if this is the gospel, this changes everything. This changes how I relate to my spouse. This changes how I relate to the world. This changes how I relate to God. And if this is you, if you feel that you are in a season where you can barely hang on, where your life and your energy is drained. Do you see this servant? Do you see the reality of double imputation for you? All of your efforts to be loved, to find worth, to stop sinning, to find security, to look for meaning. You have all of that and more in this servant. His righteousness given for you means the work is done. This is the work of the servant for you. Where do you need to put this in your life? We all have pockets of our life that this might need to get stuck into. Where do you need to take the realities of this and say, Spirit, can you help me understand this right here? Look at verse 12, the last phrase. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, that means right now. He's interceding for you. Right now, the perfect servant who has accomplished righteousness and justice and then given that to you, he's right now at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing there? He's interceding. He's calling to the Father, saying, Look at the worth of my sacrifice in life. Grace for those who are in me. Don't you think he's going to meet you? the one who's interceding right now, a living intercessor on your behalf. So it's, we, it's here that we see that the servant not only dies for sin, not only gives us his righteousness, but now that you have that, what do you want to do? You've literally had your sin removed, given the status of righteousness. What do you want to do now with your life? Literally, like, what do you want to do now with your life? If you have that type of scandalous freedom given for you, what do you want to do? It's here that we see, out of this insane, radical freedom, we now get to embody the very life of the servant to the world. Last point. The servant, the church now lives out the realities of this victory by embodying, by becoming the life of the servant. Remember how we started saying, how does the servant win the victory? And then how does the church live out the reality of that victory? this is what the New Testament writers write about all throughout the epistles. They looked at the death and resurrection of Jesus and they saw that Jesus' life wasn't just the source of salvation, but that now shapes how we do life together. We realize that the life of Jesus given for us, a life of self-emptying, of serving, of laying down life for the advancement of others. Is that why Paul now says... Let the same manner of life be yours. Lay down your life for each other. Serve each other. Give up things that will actually cost you so that other people can be served and pointed to God. The very life of the servant is the shape of our life now. We're not called to be the sacrifice for sin. That's been done. But now we actually point people to that through our life of sacrifice and service to each other. What's crazy is the life of following Jesus, this life of being emptied, is actually an invitation to show people the real resurrection power of Jesus. He invites you into his life in the world, which we often say here at Redemption, through the phrase, find your place in the story. Find your place in the story of God by saying, where has Jesus gifted me and now called me to live a life that shows and reflects the worth And the self-sacrifice of the servant. So where is he calling you right now to live in self-sacrifice for others? And if you want a really easy way to start doing this that will take you the rest of your life to figure out and you won't figure it out, get into relationship with people. Get into community with each other. Jump into life in a missional community. And I promise you there, you will find plenty of ways to die to self. You will find plenty of ways to serve others. You will find an exhaustive list of ways to be inconvenienced for the sake of others. Because do we do life in that way where we literally call each other to live life with strangers and do things together and to serve on mission together just because it's hard and we like awkwardness? I sure hope not. We do it because we're actually showing to each other this is what the servant has done for us. And we now embody that to each other, and to the world. Notice the servant goes against being obsessed with his own ease. He goes against being obsessed with his own convenience and his own privilege. And what does he do? He sacrifices for the good of others. This is why we believe in missional community life. This is why we believe it's one of the best, most effective ways that we actually get to embody the good news of Jesus to each other. This is why it's amazing being in a mission community like the one I have, where people find out we're sick or we need something, and boom, just stuff just starts to show up. Boom, $50 gift card to order out DoorDash for dinner because we're sick and we can't really cook. Well, we could cook. We have plenty of food. But our friend's like, oh, we don't want you to do that. We want you to actually serve you. We're going to give you our money so that you actually can be benefited by that. It's the resurrection life of Jesus in our people, in our missional communities that's actually pouring out and showing that to each other. So, as we close now, we started by asking how the servant would win the victory and how that would relate to the life of the church. Well, in this season of Advent, of Christmas, we celebrate God coming in weakness. God coming, not as a loud conqueror, but as one who would actually defeat the real enemy. So that we could all be drawn now into the mission and story of God. Let's pray, and uh, the band can come forward now. Jesus, we thank you for this life that you have given for us and that you now call us into. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that we do not need to give penance or provide sacrifice for our sin because you have done that work. So God, we ask that by the power of the resurrected spirit of Jesus, you would help us apply this to our lives, that you would show us where you're calling us to step into this more. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.